Hello, welcome to Debrief, a King's Chambers podcast. My name is Nigel Poole. The Debrief podcast aims to provide an analysis of issues in the field of clinical negligence and healthcare law. We hope it will be of use and interest to lawyers and non-lawyers alike. In this episode, we're going to discuss a very recent case that came before the High Court and in which the Court reached a conclusion that many may find startling, that an NHS hospital falsely imprisoned a patient for upwards of four months. The basis for that finding of false imprisonment was that deprivation of liberty safeguards, or dolls, were not followed. I'm delighted to say that I can call upon the expertise in dolls of my colleagues at King's Chambers, Sam Kareem QC and Francesca P. Gardner. Sam is a silk who specialises in court of protection and public law work, and he was one of the youngest barristers to be appointed as a QC in 2016. Now, rather like actors who have to register a name with equity to prevent duplication and confusion with other actors, Francesca Gardner has had to insert a P after her name, uh, or her first name, because King's Chambers has another Francesca Gardner. But Francesca P, who is with me today, specialises also in quarter protection work and has a burgeoning practice in that field. And both Sam and Francesca are accredited mediators for all areas of quarter protection work. Francesca, the case I've referred to is called Gloria Esagbona and King's College Hospital, NHS Foundation Trust. It's a decision of his honour judge, co-QC, sitting as a deputy high court judge. And the claimant was acting on behalf of the estate of Christiana Esagbona. We'll call her Mrs E. Um, She died on the 23rd of June 2011 at a nursing home uh, called Willsmere House, having been discharged from King's College Hospital Um, a week or so earlier, on the 14th of June. Could you tell us something of the history of events that led to Mrs E's death? Yes, um, there's quite a detailed, relevant chronology leading to the claim. Um, But in short, uh, on the 19th of October in 2010, Mrs E was admitted to hospital um, with reported shortness of breath. She'd fallen at home. Up until 2010, she'd been living at home with one of her adult daughters, and was reported to be independent and self-caring. And the judgment notes that uh, Mrs E uh, didn't speak English as her first language. On the 27th of October, at this point, Mrs E had been treated and was deemed medically fit for discharge. But on the evening of the 27th, she suffered a hypoglycemic episode and the following day had a seizure and aspirated. Mrs E was incubated and admitted to the intensive care unit in a coma. The following month, in November, a tracheostomy tube was fitted and following that, Mrs E was transferred onto a general medical ward um, on the 30th of November and remained there apart from, I think, two brief admissions to the intensive care unit when her tracheostomy tube became blocked And I think there was at least two attempts where Mrs E had tried to remove the tracheostomy tube. Um, The judgment records that Mrs E, when asked, had expressed a clear wish to return home, but that she wanted the tracheostomy to be removed before she did. Um, And on the 7th of April, 
So several months later, a psychiatric review found that she did not have capacity to make the decision to have, um, at that point, what was recommended, which was a CT angiogram. It wasn't until the 26th of May 2011 that a a psychiatrist within the trust proposed an assessment of her capacity to make a decision to decline being placed in a nursing home and to return home. The assessment itself didn't take place until the 6th of June, but the background to that period is that Mrs E had continued to express a wish to go home, and that was supported in full by her family. The defendant, the trust, had planned to identify a nursing home um, and had made the express plan to do so without consulting uh, Mrs E's family. Despite recommendations from its own psychiatrist, the trust didn't assess Mrs E's capacity, as I say, until June, so some eight months after her admission, and steps were then taken to discharge her to the nursing home on the 14th of June. Pausing there, the nursing home was two hours away from her family geographically, um, and again, there was no consultation with the family, and this was deliberate, because within the notes of the discharge coordinator, it had been written that the plan was not to be discussed with the patient's family. And a second recording um, was cleared, again from the discharge coordinator, that the family were not to be informed until they received a decision from the care home. On the 23rd of June, um, so nine days after she's uh, discharged to the nursing home, Mrs E sadly died. Uh, She was found by staff at the nursing home unresponsive and with her tracheostomy tube removed. She was 68 at the date of her death and the claim followed. Now, the claim itself, um, the claimant claimed for pain, suffering, loss of immunity, as well as damages, including aggravated damages for false imprisonment. Um, Just in brief terms, the court found that she'd been falsely imprisoned from it was the 15th of February to the 14th of June and the court identified the 15th of February as a relevant date um, because that was the date she's recorded to have said to a psychiatrist that she wanted to go home and that that was supported by her family. So that sets out really the background Mm. of how the claim came about. Well, I I can at least deal with the clinical negligence aspect of it relatively straightforwardly. The judge found that it had been a breach of duty uh, for the trust not to have passed on relevant information to the care home, the nursing home, uh, about the tracheostomy and the fact that there'd been previous episodes of blockage and self-extubation. Had they done so, the judge found, there would have been one-to-one nursing of of Mrs E at the nursing home or at least there would have been nursing such that she was constantly in sight, and therefore she wouldn't have self-extubated, as in fact happened, causing cardiac arrest and her sudden death. And so the negligence claim was made out on those findings, but damages were limited, as you've just uh, mentioned, to Mrs E's pre-death pain, suffering and loss of immunity, which were assessed in the sum of £3,500, there's no bereavement award, there's no dependency claim. It's a relatively small financial value to that claim. But the interest in the case, if I may say so, is is perhaps in relation to the false imprisonment 
aspect of it and aggravated damages for that. How, how are claims of that kind, or what causes of action, Sam, are there that might be considered in a case like this? Yeah, I mean, there, there's principally two, which is the first is under Article 5.1 of the European Convention of Human Rights, which, without going into too much detail, says that you can't be deprived your liberty without lawful authority. So in circumstances where, for instance, in this case, there were, where there was no local, lo, uh, lawful authority, it could be said that that breach then amounts to uh, sounding in damages. And so this this decision is is relatively stark in our view, or certainly in my view, because it's the first case or reported decision that we've seen which... Um, provides the damages by way of a claim for false imprisonment. Um, the majority of cases, especially in the context of court protection proceedings, are, are, are mounted on the basis of a breach of Article 5. Uh, and then you obviously bring a, a free standing claim under the Human Rights Act, alleging that breach and alleging compensation um, uh, for that breach. And so it's, it's stark in that sense, but um, it's perhaps not surprising that the claim was made for a false imprisonment case because the periods in which the allegations were made for false imprisonment or unlawful deprivation of liberty related to periods in 2011. And um, the Human Rights Act, specifically Section 7.5, states that any claim that is brought under the Human Rights Act for alleged breaches and damages there, uh, resulting thereof must be brought um, a year from from the date uh, on which the complaint or the actual breach started. Right. So it's right. not surprising that they didn't do that. And there's been a case which deals with w- uh, whether limitation can be expanded or extended, and that's the case of AP against Thameside Borough Council in 2017, which basically said it, it's quite difficult, uh, unlike Section 33 of the Limitation Act, um, to extend limitation period for breaches of human rights. Okay. So under the Human Rights Act... There is a claim for damages that can be brought for yeah. contravention of Article 5 yeah. in, that might apply to circumstances like this, yeah. but you have a one-year limitation period. Yeah. It is extendable at the discretion of the court, but it's difficult to, to, mm. to yeah. get that discretion exercised yeah. in the favour of a claimant. Yeah. The alternative might be a false imprisonment claim for which the limitation period is six, six years. years. Yeah. And looking at the dates here, although yeah. none of us were involved yeah. in this litigation, but that might yeah. be an explanation for why it was brought as it as Yeah, it absolutely. And I think um, it's important to remember what you, one needs to establish under false imprisonment, because it, obviously it's a tort. And um, to establish it, we have to um, say that there's an absence of lawful authority to justify the imprisonment. So it's almost a strict liability, or it is a strict liability. So there isn't the procedural hurdles that one may find under Article 5. Um, to to establish uh, a proper claim for false imprisonment. But there are similar arguments, but you can see why they made a claim for false imprisonment here right. um, as opposed to a breach of Article 5. We'll, we'll turn to the damages that were awarded a little later, but yeah. broadly, would the damages that might be payable under the or awarded under the Human Rights Act be comparable with false imprisonment damages, or is there a significant difference between them? Well, I think the the majority of decisions uh, relating to damages, false imprisonment, actually relate to Secretary of State Home Department cases mm. over the Home Office, unlawfully detained individuals uh, for whatever reason. Um, in this decision, I think the judge went through two such decisions and one MOD decision. Mm. Um, they are comparable, to answer mm. your 
question mm. in short fashion because there are three principal decisions that have been made in the court of protection um, which where the court has approved damages for certain periods so the, there's the Neary case um, there's the Mrs. D case and there's the Essex County Council case. Um, they range from 2011 to 2015. And in short, they establish that on average for a lawful deprivation of liberty under Article 5, you're looking at about three to £4,000 per month, which I think, I mean, maths is not my forte. <laughs> but um, yeah, It's th- comparable with the damages. Yeah, I think, I think it's here. about 120 or £125 yeah. a month. Right. But I think in this case... A day, a sorry, day yeah. Forgive me. Yeah. A day, and I think in this case, they've awarded. Well, he's awarded on the basis of 130 pounds a day. So they they are comparable. So uh, I said in opening the uh, podcast that for some, for many, perhaps it might be startling to think that the NHS could be um, a defendant and successfully sued for falsely imprisoning a patient at one of our NHS hospitals. But perhaps I. That's because I'm approaching it from a clinical negligence background. For, for you, uh, and knowing about dolls and, and the way that works, is this this isn't a unique case, is it? Uh, no, I don't think it is. <laughs> um, routinely, people in hospital that uh, lack capacity are assessed, firstly, in, in relation to whether or not they have capacity to consent to their care arrangements. And in the event that they don't, there are clear established procedures that, that are to be followed to then authorise any deprivation of liberty that arises from their care. Um, For example, in Mrs E's case, there is a clear procedure that could have been followed. There would have been an assessment of her capacity to make decisions as to where she should reside for the purposes of receiving care. In the event that that assessment concluded she lacked capacity, there's then two separate routes, arguably, that could be taken. The first is that assessments are conducted under Schedule A1 of the Mental Capacity Act, and they are the qualifying requirements assessment so the the main assessments would be a capacity assessment and then a best interest assessment and if they conclude that it's in her best interest to remain where she is or perhaps to reside the, the same sort of assessments could have taken place following her discharge then the supervisory body which in this scenario um would have been it would actually have been probably the local authority with the the hospital acting as the managing authority could have authorised that, but the processes, as I understand it, just weren't triggered. Um, separate to the argument about deprivation of liberty here, there doesn't seem to have been any application of the Mental Capacity Act at all, because it seems as though, I think on no less than three occasions, the treating psychiatrist uh, actually recommended a capacity assessment. And not only would that arguably have triggered the Schedule A1 process, but would have triggered then a best interest process, which would have led to a meeting. At that meeting would have been the relevant professionals and clinicians, Mrs E's family members, uh, perhaps Mrs E herself. And at that meeting, there would have been discussion around the decision. And it seems as though the decision was whether or not it was in her best interest to be discharged to the identified nursing home. What would then happen or should happen in the event that the meeting isn't resolved, so there isn't agreement reached, is that then the decision can be taken to refer the matter to the Court of Protection. And I think that's part of the claimant's case, because 
the code of practice that accompanies the Mental Capacity Act is clear that if there is an irresolvable dispute about best interests, then that is a matter for the Court of Protection. And routinely, um, Sam and I have been involved in cases where there is a dispute about discharge and there is um, you know, easy and relatively quick access to a Court of Protection judge who can then make that decision pretty quickly if all of the evidence is there, but it, it's ultimately a decision for the court if there's a dispute. So just stepping back to the beginning of that process, mm. there must be a huge number of patients in NHS hospitals and indeed in care homes, nursing homes, who lack capacity to what to make decisions about where they live or yes. their care arrangements. And that would include people who perhaps have had a stroke or a brain injury or have dementia, but including those who've maybe come from an intensive care unit and are on a ward in the hospital, as Mrs. E was. Yes. What, what, you talk about a mental capacity assessment. So that's an assessment that should be made for all of those patients or is this is this just part of the routine of looking after a patient who who might lack capacity Where, what would trigger it i think it's it's a clinical view and in this case it had clearly been taken by yeah. the psychiatrist um there is of course a presumption of capacity right. for everybody mm-hmm. but if a doubt has been raised that that should trigger then an assessment of that person's capacity particularly in circumstances where the trust in the scenario are proposing to take a decision that the person themselves actually objects to and the family object. So if the mm. trust was working on the basis that she had capacity and objected, they had no lawful authority to move her at all. Um, so that, that should have triggered the capacity assessment. Right. So a patient who might be in and out of hospital in a couple of days who has dementia, you wouldn't necessarily expect a full mental capacity assessment to be done but where there is a decision to be made and yes. it appears there may be a dispute about that decision yes. well you've, you've and there's a doubt about capacity well you you do a you do an assessment or what yes. who, who would typically do do that assessment what are the tests that they apply that could be done either by um, a psychiatrist um, or a GPs routinely carry out assessments. Social workers are, particularly uh, social workers working in adult social care, are usually now qualified to carry out those assessments. So there's a number of professionals that can carry them out and they follow the clear statutory test in Section 2 and 3 in the applicable case law because we have guidance on virtually all decisions now that a person um, would make in a typical court of protection case where you apply the relevant information and assess whether or not that person can use and weigh uh, and retain the information and then properly communicate it. And I note in Mrs E's case that she had communication difficulties, so inevitably any assessment of her capacity would have to have set out and established a way of if possible, communicating with her and identifying, firstly, if she has capacity and if she doesn't, what her wishes and feelings are. And it seems clear from this case that she was saying she, she didn't want to go to the nursing home. She was objecting to it. So bre- breaking it down, the, the mental capacity assessment, would you expect the family of a patient to be involved at that stage? They might have useful information or or would you, you think this would be 
purely an assessment by a healthcare professional or social worker? It, it, the assessment itself would be carried out by the professional. Mm. Um, I've certainly had experience of family members um, assisting the person as part of the assessment to communicate mm. or assisting yes. the professional. Yeah. But the assessment itself, no, would just be done by the professional. Yeah. And in this specific case, Mrs E, as you've said, had communication difficulties, in part a language yes. uh, issue and also in part because of the tracheostomy that she Quite. had. She needed a device mm. to help her to speak. There was some suggestion, wasn't there, in the evidence that it, it wasn't functioning perhaps as it might yes. have done. And and the recommendation of the psychiatrist had been to maximise right. her ability to communicate yeah. As part of that assessment, yeah, that's yeah. right. Because I think the the the, the judge uh, had benefit of an independent expert, Lynn Fair, who I think dealt with a lot of social care issues and mental capacity issues. But she identified that one of the things they ought to have done was to maximise the ability to her to communicate uh, at the relevant time. Yeah. So there's no dispute that if an assessment had been done, that Mrs. E would have lacked capacity to make decisions about her. Uh, residence and care or I think from reading the judgment her daughter had said that she didn't necessarily accept she lacked capacity mm. but would not have objected in any way to the processes being followed okay. so if there was a capacity assessment that had concluded she lacked capacity as I read the evidence yeah. um, her daughter had said that they would then have engaged in the best interest yeah. process so if she'd been found to have capacity you'd have to respect her decisions yes. right. even if they were unwise decisions Absolutely. or you yes. thought yes. they were yeah. an unwise decision because just to emphasise it, there was presumably thought to be significant risk in allowing her to go home, even being nursed by caring and able family members because of the tracheostomy, so mm. she was at, at risk. OK, so one, once the assessment's done, as should have been done in this case, um, and you've assessed that the patient is, lacks capacity to make those decisions, and capacity is very specific to the decisions you're considering... Then you talked about a best interests assessment. Well, so who's involved in that? Well, there's, there's two aspects to it. So mm. the best interest meeting that would be convened is, as I explained, there would be the relevant professionals and the family members to talk about the decision. And that's, that is, um, in large part, separate and distinct to any authorisation of any deprivation of her liberty. So as part of the assessments for Schedule A1, so any deprivation of her liberty, there would also be a best interest assessment, which would be conducted by somebody completely independent of the case. And I note that in the judgment, Mrs E's daughter had said that she thought that would have really have helped to have somebody independent. But then once those assessments are concluded, it might be that the supervisory body, so the local authority, would grant a standard authorisation, which authorises any deprivation of Mrs E's liberty, but also triggers certain mechanisms for review. So, for example, if you are deprived of your liberty under a standard authorisation, um, Mrs E would have been appointed with a relevant person's representative. That can either be a family member or a paid advocate. Um, it, may, it may have been her daughter in this case. Um, and that person can then take steps, if appropriate, to refer the matter to the Court of Protection. And it could have been challenged in that way before the decision was taken. Tell me a bit more about Schedule A1. Yes, so Schedule A1 um, allows for, as I say, a standard authorisation to be put in place for a person if all of the assessments have taken place. There is also provision in urgent circumstances for an urgent authorisation, which allows seven days or perhaps an extra seven days in certain circumstances, so 14, 
um, for the assessments to take place. But neither of those were used in this case, and the, the judge was really critical of that. But not only does it mean that a person is deprived of their liberty in accordance with a procedure prescribed by law, so Article 5 compliant, but it makes it extremely straightforward for it to be challenged. And in this case, it could have been challenged either by Mrs E herself or her family members. And you make what's called a Section 21A application, which in short terms brings with it non-means-tested public funding for the person at the heart of the case. And the deprivation of liberty here was that her choice would have been to to be at home, to leave. leave. So she was being effectively retained or, I won't say detained, but kept in hospital against Against her her will. Which is a a factor that the best interest assessor would take into account when reaching a decision as to what's in her best interest. And her wishes and feelings, how do they feed into... Best a best interest assessment. Or, well, they, they or are a they? significant. Um, I mean, there's different phraseologies in in terms of how you put this, but I mean, they they are probably on balance a significant part of the decision making process because the whole point of the Mental Capacity Act was to put P, so the person who lacks capacity, in the centre. Mm. Uh, and th- there has been several case laws, which cases which have sought to explain how much weight you put on P's wishes and feelings. And one of them quite usefully says, well, actually, if if P is uh, rational in his or her decision making, then that's a good example of where you may place more weight, for instance. But if they're becoming irrational and they don't understand the significance for, in, in this case, in Mrs. E's case, the significance of not having the proper care in a certain environment, then you place less weight. But the starting point, certainly in my view, will always be what P's wishes and feelings are and then you place whatever weight you think, based on the circumstances, is appropriate to place on it. Mm. But they are a very important part. So in this case, the false imprisonment finding, determination mm. by the judge, arose from the fact that law, that the retention in hospital yep. was unlawful because these procedures we'd been, we'd been talking about were not carried out. Yes. Mm. Yeah. No, no assessments, no mental capacity assessment, no yes. best interest assessment, yep. no taking into account of wishes and feelings. The family were also excluded from the whole yep. process the judge found. You, you mentioned, Francesca, the finding was it had started this period of false imprisonment on the 15th of February. The trust actually accepted, they admitted false imprisonment, yes. but from a later date. And I think the judge found it ended when Mrs. E was transferred to, to their home. home. Yeah. Was, was that obviously the end of false imprisonment or i find that quite an interesting Mm. conclusion um because it it seems from reading it that the deprivation of her liberty didn't end she was then placed somewhere against her will and presumably given that the assessment of her needs was that she required 24-hour care she was presumably then subject to continuous supervision and control and not free to leave which is the test that we apply to identify if somebody is deprived of their liberty as i understand it from reading the judgment the courts um, couldn't identify which public body was responsible for her at that time and therefore didn't conclude that she was there was a false imprisonment at that time. Um, it, it, it seems clear that there will have been a public body responsible and I think she was eligible for and in receipt of continuing health care. So it was arguably the, the relevant CCG, but it doesn't seem that that was brought in as part of the claim. But usually claims of this nature... Um, and particularly where the particulars are that the Mental Capacity Act hasn't been followed. It's when somebody is placed 
in a care home or nursing home without any lawful authority. So it's a surprise that the court determined that it had ended at that point. And the defendant had sought to avoid liability, one of its arguments, by reason of the fact that it it said it was not the responsible body for what for place for placing Mrs. E. Yes. Um, um, what did the judge make of that? Well, I think argument? technically the, the defendant was right about that, but um, it seems that the trust psychiatrist in evidence conceded that, um, I, I can't remember if it was a he or a she, but the psychiatrist or um, clinician had been directly involved in the decision to discharge and care planning. So the judge found that it, it was the trust that was the relevant body. And the trust was responsible. Yes. Turning to damages and and how the courts approach this, are are there cases somewhere the courts will say, well, there there was a a contravention or there there was false imprisonment, but um, even if the lawful procedures have been followed, the um, the party, the patient, would have been in exactly the same position. Yeah, that's right, and that's exactly. uh, that's exactly the conclusion of a case in the Court of Appeal in, uh, of the name of Bostridge, which is named in, in mm-hmm. this decision because that's exactly what the King's Hospital said, that actually even had the procedures which Francesca has um, carefully outlined been followed, the net result would have been that she would have been still detained in hospital until a suitable nursing home was found. Um, and so it's not uncommon for trusts or defendants who are subject to challenges for breaches of, say, Article 5 or false imprisonment to rely on Bostridge and to say, well, actually, it's simply a procedural defect or a procedural breach and it wouldn't have made any material difference and which is why I think this judgment is quite significant as well because um, uh, the judge having considered the independent evidence from Lynn Fair said well actually I can't specifically say whether or not it would have made a difference but it could have done Uh, and certainly in my experience the burden has been much higher where courts have said well listen the burden's on you to establish that for instance had the process been followed P would have left Mm. or at least restrictive environment for P would have been afforded or you know something would have materially changed on the ground Um, so he he was quite quick to to disapply Bostridge Um, but in doing so I think it's 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 welcome for a lot of claimant lawyers, I think, this judgment, because it's the first judgment post-Bostridge, mm. which actually puts it aside and said, well, uh, and says, well, actually, we don't, we can't say for certain what would have happened, but it may have made a material difference. Mm. So to that, to that extent, it, it is quite significant. So in Bostridge, there was this expression about it being obvious that the outcome would have been the same. Yeah. And is on a judge co QC, so mm. it's not at all obvious. No, that's in right. In this case, but that seemed enough for him to to find for that him. Yes, an entitlement yeah. to damages was made out. That's right, and uh, I think, as I say, I can only just go back to my own experience. I, I've certainly found courts to interpretate Bostridge on the basis that listen, you make that assertion, you're going to have to convince us that they would have actually made a real difference on the ground. Mm. Um, so to, to that extent, it's a very useful judgment, I think, for claimant lawyers. I think the judge said sh- that Mrs. E would, would, would have been moved out of an acute hospital sooner. Yeah. 
and she would have had a voice in her future care, but not necessarily that she would probably have gone home. Yeah, no, was, so well, that's right, yeah. and, and and a voice into. Um, mm. The process is obviously important, mm. but actually, does it make a material difference mm. on the ground? Arguably, no. But I think um, paragraph—it's a long judgment. So, paragraph two hundred and twenty-six <laughs> on page eighty-one of the judgment yeah. really sums up what the judge says, because he he says uh, in, in no uncertain terms that it may have been the situation that if an assessment had been completed, an expiration of the possibility of being discharged home perhaps could have been explored, but. In my experience, that's not enough. No. I think you have to really grapple with the merits of that assertion to say, well, actually, on balance, P would have returned home had the assessments been completed. And so to that extent, it it, it liberalises, if I yeah. can use that phrase, um, what Bostris says. And we touched on this earlier, but the damages that were awarded for false imprisonment, he assessed after yeah. reviewing some authorities at £130 per day. Yeah. So that amounted to £15,470. Sure. And then he turned to the question of aggravated mm. damages, so yeah. which he awarded. What, why mm. was that? Well, I mean, I think it, what, what he found was that there'd been quite exceptional conduct on the defendant. And, and just to be clear what ag- aggravated damages actually means, that there are normally three different types of aggravated damages when, in terms of when they're appropriate. The first where the wrong committed, uh, and here the unlawful deprivation of liberty, was exceptionally upsetting um, to the claimant's feelings or pride or dignity, which I think is something they relied upon here. B, there was some bad motive on the part of the defendant, and I don't think that was an accusation here. Or C, that the defendant's subsequent con- conduct was unnecessarily offensive. And again, that's not relevant here. I think what the judge found particularly compelling was the fact that the claimant had clear wishes and feelings, which weren't listened to, and the procedures in the Act, uh, in terms of the Medical Capacity Act, were not followed. And so to that extent, it was, and and I think that that was trite evidence in the case, that it was exceptionally upsetting to her um, when her wishes and feelings weren't adhered to. So um, it's it's quite exceptional to see aggravated damages in the context of breaches of Article 5, in my experience. And I'm I'm quite surprised that um, the judge was quite ready to entertain um, the claim, but um, I think there was the second aspect to it, yeah. wasn't there? That um, in terms of the aggravated damages, because of the what the judge called the behaviour of the trust to exclude the family from the decision-making mm. process, which completely flies in the face of the Mental Capacity Act and Section Four. And he said that that was high-handed mm. and oppressive, uh, and led him to say it was appropriate to make the um, award of aggravated damages. But you know, routinely in court of protection cases the court will look to what the family say or what the the, the people that are tasked with caring for the person mm. say, you know, the people that are close. So the fact that not only did they not consult, mm. but that they deliberately excluded, I think certainly led to that conclusion. Yeah. So an additional £5,000 in aggravated damages was awarded on top of the damages for false imprisonment. Yeah. And we've, as yes. we mentioned earlier, the clinical negligence damages for pain, suffering and loss of amenity. Just turning back to what should have happened and, and, and the processes that should have been adopted and followed that you've set out really helpfully, they must, that, it must have quite significant resource implications for the NHS and care homes and so on to, to have to go through those procedures. Um, yes, I mean, absolutely. Um, following the Supreme Court decision in Cheshire West, which set the test for the domestic application of Article 5, which said that 
anyone that lacks capacity and can't consent to their care arrangements if they are the subject of continuous supervision and control and they're not free to leave um, the local authority is responsible for authorising any deprivation of their liberty um, and it's had huge resource implications um, both in relation to people in hospitals and care homes mm. the category that Mrs E would fall into because those people can be assessed and their care package is authorised under the schedule that I talked about earlier but for people that are in their own homes or in independent supported living settings, they're, they're not covered by the Act. So that has to be a separate application to the Court of Protection, often by health bodies. Um, so that the implications um, for resources are mm. huge. Mm. Another aspect of resor- resources, if there is a, a mental capacity assessment and then a best interest assessment, say the proposal is that, or the wish is to be discharged, but to a care home out of, out of hospital. Well, what if the there just isn't one free? I mean, what? How does the court or how do the courts approach that? So maybe in someone's best well, interest for something yeah. to happen, but well, it we can't s- happen. <laughs> no, that's right, and we and we saw that at the back end of last year when uh, I think it was Mr. Um, Lord Justice Mumby who was talking about. Um, uh, a lack of mental health resources or placements for children. Mm-hmm. And that was in the news. It was very well um, publicised. Um, it's a problem. Mm-hmm. Um, and the way you deal with it, in my view anyway, is to find what the statutory duty is, find who who's responsible. Uh, and in um, seven out of ten times, it's a mandatory duty. So if, for instance, someone's needs are such under the CARE Act or the NHS Act um, that require a certain placement and a certain quality of need, uh, and that's not being provided, then you um, go to the administrative court and you ask for uh, what we used to call a mandamus order, so a mandatory order, mm. um, seeking that that, that that placement is is found and someone's yeah. transferred there. I mean, if it doesn't exist, it doesn't exist, but um, we ha- I've certainly been involved in cases where uh, placements have been produced. Yeah, so um, there's a bit of judicial shaking of the tree too. <laughs> absolutely, and I think it depends on the jurisdiction. I mean, say, for instance, if you're in the Court of Protection, um, some um, Court of Protection judges, in particular the High Court judges, may sit in the Administrative Court and they may think imaginatively and um, put, as they, one judge said to me, put their Administrative Court hat on mm. and exercise their uh, jurisdiction to, to force certain things to happen. But if they don't, and if they can't sit... In, in that jurisdiction, then you have to go to the administrative court. But there is um, a lot of pressure that judges can put on uh, local authorities or statutory bodies to to provide a provision. Well, they call it probing, don't they? They yeah. can probe. Mm. The Court of Protection can probe and um, explore a public body's decision, but it, it mm. certainly can't compel any public body to provide a resource that it's simply not willing to do. So in answer to your question, what can the court do if it's not there or if it's not the local authority or relevant health trust isn't willing to commission it the answer is very little mm. um, but as, as Sam says in, mm. in most cases the court's willing to explore that a little bit before proceedings are concluded mm. so in a case like this where you're, you're not trying to get the courts to do something but mm. it's looking back on what on the failures yeah you've said right at the outset that it's unusual to see it brought as an action for false imprisonment mm. in this way. Yeah. Just t- tell me briefly how it is usually dealt with. Um, you mentioned Article um, yeah. 
Article Five and yeah. the Human Rights Act. How, how do you? What's the process? How do you? Yeah. How does someone bring a claim of that? Kind? So th- th- there's two ways if you're um, seeking to establish a breach under Article Five. Normally, it comes within, or the, the 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 allegations come within a court of protection case itself. So when someone's brought a, the matter to the court of protection to determine issues, say in, say of best interests, um, issues about unlawful deprivation can arise. And that judge in that case can then make directions to determine the issue of unlawful deprivation of liberty under Article 5. So you can do it within proceedings. Mm. The alternative way is actually doing it outside of proceedings. So it's a freestanding, what, 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 I, what I call a freestanding human rights claim, where you allege under the Human Rights Act the relevant provisions that there's been a breach of the Human Rights Act, in particular Article 5, and you issue pure claims for declaratory relief, number one, and number two for damages. Um, those are the two principal ways in which you can seek redress, in my experience. Well, thank you to Sam Kareem and to Francesca P. Gardner. Uh, this and other debrief podcasts are available on the King's Chambers website at kingschambers.com. Just go to the resources and training tab and click on podcasts, and you can obtain a fact sheet for this and each episode of Debrief by emailing podcast at kingschambers.com. Thank you, Thank you and Thank goodbye. You.